What a beautiful morning it has been to be together, to be in worship, to pray together, to feel the things we need to feel together, and also rejoice in the things we need to rejoice together. I hope as you have participated this morning, if you, as you've joined the circle, that you've experienced that, that you have felt that, and that no matter where you find yourself on your own journey today, that you've been reminded of God's faithfulness and his presence in our lives and in the world around us. My name is Sue Ann Camfield. I have the joy of serving on staff here at Christ Church. And this morning, I have the added joy of opening God's word and sharing a few reflections with you that God has been stirring in my own soul over these last couple of weeks. This morning, we are continuing our sermon series entitled Wild where we are journeying along with the people of God through the book of Exodus. And this morning, we will find ourselves moving through chapters 15 through 18. And so if you have your Bibles with you or you wanna follow along on your phone, you might appreciate jumping in and out with me. We will also have some verses on the screen uh, that you can reference as you go. So about a month ago, I had the good fortune of encountering a book that was new to me called The Gift of Restlessness by a pastor, a spiritual director, a friend of mine named Casey Tigret. And the book is about those seasons in our lives, those unsettled seasons, those seasons in our lives where we feel like we've been uprooted from one place, Maybe physically, maybe relationally, maybe emotionally, maybe spiritually. And we know there's another season yet to come. We know something else is on the other side, but we're not there yet. We find ourselves living in this space in between. And in it, Casey, God bless his heart, he references one of my favorite songs of all time, one of the most iconic songs of all time, maybe you know it, it was released in 1999, and it's called Closing Time by a band named Semisonic. I see some of you shaking your heads. It's in its literal version, it's this song about a bartender who is trying to close his establishment down for the night. And so he starts telling the people, hey, it's closing time. And I imagine him kind of yelling over the crowds and the noise and him saying uh, this great line in the song. And he says, you don't have to go home, but what? You can't stay here. That's right. That's going to be the only thing you remember from this sermon today. You're going to go home singing that song. Let me ask you this morning, have you ever found yourself in the space in between? Maybe you find yourself there this morning You're trying hard not to look too much to the past that once was or too much to a future that is not yet, but you're wrestling, you're restless in this place in between because it's hard. It's hard. And what I want you to hear this morning as we enter this text that there is good news. And part of that good news is that you are not alone. Because the space in between is exactly where the people of Israel find themselves as we open the Bible to Exodus chapter 15. Now, Exodus chapters 15 through 18, they mark an important transition point in the journey of the people of God. 
If you were here last week, you heard Dan and Tracy give a beautiful sermon uh, focused on chapter 14, where God delivers his people from Egypt once and for all. They are finally set free after 400 years of slavery. God miraculously parts the Red Sea, and now the people find themselves on the other side. And that's good news, except now as they find themselves on the other side, they also find themselves on the precipice of the unknown. They know their experience of home is over. They know they can never go back to life as it once was. And yet they also know that God has made them a promise. God has promised them this place, this land that he told Moses is flowing with milk and honey. They know it is there. They're trying to cling to that promise, but they find themselves in this awful place of being in between. And in between the home where they once knew and the promise yet to be fulfilled lies a massive and rugged desert that the Bible and theologians throughout time call the wilderness. The wilderness. Now, our sermon this morning is titled Trust and Obey. Trust and Obey. And so as we enter into the wild together this morning, what I'm going to invite you to do is hold your own wilderness experiences in one hand and hold the word of God in the other and place it all in Jesus' feet together and ask him what he has to say to us this morning. Can we actually just take a minute and pray to that end together? Lord, we come before you this morning with open and humble hearts. We ask that you use the power of your word and your Holy Spirit to reveal truth to us, reveal truth in us, and draw us to your good and faithful presence. May the meditation of my heart and the words of my lips bring you glory, honor, and praise. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So uh, back in August, uh, Eric and I road tripped out to Arizona to take our daughter, Sadie, to her senior year of college at Grand Canyon University. Now, I'm one of those people, I love road trips. So this is like my joy in life. I say my love language is road trips. And so we are on the road. We drive through the beautiful mountains of Colorado. We make a stop to spend the weekend in Moab, Utah. I don't know if you've ever been to Moab. It was our first time there. We absolutely loved it. We went hiking around Arches National Park. We had great food. We had an awesome time together, great quality time. The whole trip was just one of the very best sweet family moments that I think we have ever had. And the morning we were leaving Moab, we stopped at a great local coffee shop because we always do when it's time to get on the road. And um, I took this picture. And uh, then we uh, hopped in the car, we had a great cup of coffee, we hopped in the car, we made the final leg to, uh, on our way to Phoenix, and I jumped in the back of the car, Sadie was driving, Eric was in the front seat. I posted this picture and a few other pictures on Instagram, and I captioned it, best last. And then I immediately started to cry. (laughs) I had that mom moment, my daughter said, mom, are you crying? And I said, you know what, Just, just give me a minute, because my heart was just so full. Everything was right in the world. Have you had those moments in your life where you just want to freeze time and you think, I just don't want it to end? What I didn't know when I posted that picture 
was that about two hours later, our circumstances would shift dramatically. <laughs> we'd go from the highest of highs to one of the lowest of lows because we'd find ourselves broken down on the side of the road, literally in the desert. And just for dramatic effect, I, I want you to take a look at this video so you can just see where we were. The gas station you see in this video is abandoned, by the way. <laughs> We were literally in the desert. We were 55 miles from the nearest town. And at first we thought it was kind of funny, um, but I confess after about two and a half hours, after we exhausted all of our resources, I started to get a little panicky because over and over again, we, told, we were told no one was coming to help. Now, I would love to share how that story ends. Clearly, we got out of it because I'm sitting here today. It's a great story. I don't have uh, time to share all the details, but I will say my husband is here today. And if you want to find him and ask him how he had to push the car the last mile and a half down the highway to get us where we needed to go, I'm sure he would love to share that story with you. <laughs> I share that story just for a little bit of levity. It feels like we need to laugh a little bit together today. But I also just want to acknowledge right off the bat the first thing about the wilderness that I want you to hear today, and that is the wilderness can come without warning. And I don't have a lot of additional teaching on that. I just feel like it's something we need to acknowledge because I imagine that some of us come here today and we have had that experience. Maybe some of us are in it now. You're going down the highway of life. Everything is beautiful. You are happy. You are joyful. And then wham, the unexpected hits and you find yourselves in the middle of the desert. This is what happens to the Israelites as we enter chapter 15. Last week, as I said, we saw that chapter 15 starts on a high. The people of Israel had just been delivered from the Red Sea. Moses writes this beautiful song of praise and thanksgiving. Miriam, his sister, is singing this song along with all of the Israelites as they dance and they sing. She leads the women into the camp. They're singing songs to God, and chapter 15 begins like this. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver, he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. This goes on for 21 verses. And then we hit verse 22, and here's our sharp turn. Here's the unexpected. Verse 22 then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days, they traveled in the desert without finding water. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the desert in this part of the world is a vast and rugged landscape. From where they came out of the Red Sea to the Promised Land probably is about 300 miles. And in that 300 miles, the desert is made up of five different wildernesses. We find ourselves beginning in the wilderness of Shur. We will see that we move on from that. But in the middle of the wilderness, is, uh, in the middle of these wildernesses, is the wilderness of Sinai, where Mount Sinai is, which is the place, as many of us know, we'll see next week, where God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses. He establishes the law with his people. Now, what happens in the wilderness of Shur, this first story in chapter 15, it's a brief vignette. 
It's a brief vignette. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but it's an important vignette because it establishes a pattern of behavior that we're going to see time and time again, not just today, but throughout the book of Exodus. And the pattern goes like this. The Israelites were delivered. God delivered them. They are on a very high high. And then a problem arises. And most often, it's a legitimate problem. They actually need food. They actually need water. But the people in response to their problem, they start to grumble. And they start to complain. We're going to see this a lot in the book of Exodus. And so Moses, he intercedes on their behalf. And then God delivers his people. And we see this pattern repeat itself over and over again. Let's see if we can see this pattern as we continue this first vignette in chapter 15. So we said, Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. So there we have a deliverance and then we come to a problem. For three days, they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses. What are we going to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood, and Moses threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. And then we see in verse 27 that they move on from there. They come to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. Talk about deliverance. And there they camped near the water. You can see that pattern of behavior in the text. Now, there's a couple of things before we move on that I don't want us to miss here because it's important as we continue in the book of Exodus, it's important for us to have the context. First of all, these chapters are a very short period of time in the, in the Israelites' overall journey. They take place over about three months. In, uh, in contrast, they're going to spend about 38 years at the base of Mount Sinai. The other thing that's important to note right here is that the law has not yet been established. They have not received the law. Now, once the law is established, the people will have some very clear expectations on what God expects of them and how they are supposed to live this life together with God. But right now in this space in between, they're kind of fumbling their way through. And so God does something wise because he's kind and he's good and he's wise. And what he does is he uses this time. He uses this time just like he uses it in many of our lives to begin to shape the people into who he wants them to become. Into the vision he has for them being his covenant people. And so in order to do that, he establishes some ground rules for the journey. Verse 26. There the Lord at Marah issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all of his degrees, decrease, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your God who heals you. For I, the Lord your God, am, am good. Jesus says this in a different way in the New Testament when he says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Part of God establishing a relationship with his people means that he has to establish some boundaries 
about what this relationship is going to look like, just like any of us who begin a new relationship. Maybe we start a new job. Maybe uh, we have a child. Maybe um, we are in a dating relationship. We need to establish some boundaries about what that relationship looks like. And for reasons that will become more and more clear in the weeks to come, essential to that relationship between God and his people is trust and obedience. Now, I already told you that I've been singing that song closing time (laughs) this week. But yesterday I was standing in my kitchen and I was singing that old hymn, um, Trust and Obey. Do you know that song? Trust and Obey. I'm not going to sing it. For there's no other way. It would be to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. The classic crowd killed that this morning, by the way. <laughs> they did closing time also. I was very proud of them. They did both of the songs. And I was standing in the kitchen. I was singing this song, and um, Eric looked at me, and uh, he said, you know what? Uh, that song, That song is really interesting. There's a lot of good things about that hymn. But he said, you know, when people are in the wilderness, there's nothing worse than reminding them, like, hey, Just trust and obey. You'll be happy in Jesus. And I said, yeah, I think there's a little actually um, bad theology in that song. And I, I bring that up because I think we have to be very careful. This teaches us something. We have to be very careful that we don't link our circumstances with trust and obedience. That we don't think that if we trust and obey, that then we're going to get out of the wilderness quickly, or that God is going to fix all of our circumstances. That if we just trust and obey, God will make everything okay. He makes everything okay at the end. But we can see for the Israelites, this is a spoiler alert, but this mentality where the Israelites continue to link their trust and obedience to whether God comes through for them ends really poorly for them. And so I want us to be clear this morning about something else about the wilderness. The wilderness will test both our trust and our obedience. We'll test both our trust and our obedience. Now, we've talked quite a bit through this series of what it means to trust God. We've defined it in its simplest terms as having faith which is true because the book of Hebrews says to be certain of what we hope for and sure of what we cannot see. And so that's trust, and while obedience goes hand in hand with trust, it also goes a step beyond. It adds another layer to the relationship because we can trust someone and not obey them. We can obey someone and not trust them. True obedience is about trusting in someone or something so completely that we're willing to submit themselves, submit ourselves to the boundaries they've established. We are willing to submit themselves to the way of life that they have designed for us. And here's the kicker. We have to do it even when it's hard. We have to do it maybe especially when it's hard, like when we're in a wilderness season that we didn't ask to be in and we don't know exactly how long it's going to last and the rules don't seem to exactly make sense. I think when we come to these places where it's hard, where it's hard to trust and obey, I think that's when we need to lean in even a little more and maybe we need to reframe our idea of obedience. We need to ask ourselves, not whether we trust the rules, but if we trust the rule maker. 
Do we trust the one that made the rules that he is good and that he is kind and that he has our best interests at heart? Because when a good person, when someone has our best interests in mind, when they establish boundaries for us, parents, we know this, right? When we establish boundaries for our children, they may think it's hard for them, but we know what's best for them because we love them and we care for them. And so we don't just do rules for rules' sake. Rules are always about the relationship. Now, let me be clear about this. God cares very much about how we live. God cares very much about our obedience. God holds his people to a higher standard than he holds the rest of the world because he wants the world to look at us and be a reflection of who he is. And it's exactly what he was asking the Israelites to do. God cares very much about our obedience. But God's kingdom is never just about following the rules. In fact, we know this, you can follow all the rules, you can live a very obedient life, you can come to church, you can go to Bible study every week, you can tithe, you can be generous, you can volunteer, you can be the best person that everyone knows, and you can still miss the very thing that obedience calls us to, what it was designed for, which is to invite us into a deeper relationship of trust and intimacy with God, our Father, the creator of the universe. And this, this is what he is trying to call the people to in the book of Exodus as they fumble their way through the wilderness. Now, there's something else here I want to point out before we move on, because we see that God tests his people. It says not only does he establish boundaries, not only does he um, place instructions and rules, but he put them to the test. I confess I wanted to just skip by this. <laughs> I wanted to skip by it because it's a tricky phrasing, but I want us to sit here for a minute and say, what does it mean for God to test his people? Now, I don't know about you, but the minute I hear the word test, I kind of have a negative reaction. All the students in the room were like, oh, yeah. I have a negative guttural reaction. It sounds manipulative. It sounds like someone is testing me just to see if I'm going to screw up. Well, what if we remember that all tests are not bad? All tests are not bad. We take tests in school to increase our knowledge. We take tests to get a driver's license to keep ourselves and others safe on the road. We allow our children sometimes to test the boundaries of the limits we have set for them so they can discern the difference between right and wrong. We dip our toe in a pool of water to test the temperature to decide if we want to jump all the way in. We take a sip of coffee. We test it so that we don't burn our throat. We date people because we want to test their character. The word test actually means, in reference to the process a metal goes to, through to see what's pure, to see what will be revealed once we get to the heart. And I wonder today if perhaps the reason we often have a negative reaction to the word test is because we refuse, we um, correlate the word test with the word trap. We confuse those two words. Tim Mackey says a test can be a trap, it can be, or it can be an opportunity. The difference is if the one who is testing you, the rule maker, has your best interests in mind. 
Satan tested Adam and Eve in the garden because he wanted to see them fail. God tests his people in the wilderness because he wants to see us grow. He wants to see what's in our heart. He wanted to see for the Israelite people, he wanted to establish that relationship and to give them opportunities to trust him more so that in this process, he could also prove to them that he is indeed a trustworthy God. The New Testament writer James says it like this, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. God wants to test the people so that he can show them who he is and that he is the only one that can provide all their needs. We see God test his people in the wilderness like this over and over again. Okay, so let's go back to the pattern we said that we can see in these stories that we have God's deliverance, there is a problem that arises, the people grumble and complain, Moses intercedes, and then God delivers its people again. And I, I want us to watch this pattern as we quickly move through chapters 16 and 17. Chapter 16, starting with verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. Moses here wants us to know that it's been exactly one month since the Israelites have started their exodus. Now in the desert, here we go, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if we only had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, they're starting to long for the home that will never be again. There we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them. I will test them to see if they will follow my instructions. And then God gives them some instructions. And then we see in verse 10, while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert. And there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord was present with them in their wilderness. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat. In the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I and the Lord your God. God is testing his people, and God is proving himself trustworthy. I wish we had time to go through these stories. I would encourage you, take those Wild Devo cards home and talk about this at your tables with your small group because there's so much in this story. But the summary of this, it's the famous story of the manna and the quail. The summary of this is that God's people had a need, that God indeed makes good on his promise. And in the evening, he gives them food to eat in the form of quail. And in the morning, they wake up and they find thin flakes like frost covering the desert floor known as manna. This manna will sustain them for the next 38 years. And so God provides their needs and then he gives them some instructions. He establishes some boundaries for their relationship. And he tells them, he said, gather as much as you need, 
don't take more, don't take less. And then he says, don't keep anything till the morning. I actually want you to get rid of it. And on the sixth day, uh, go out, gather twice as much as you need, because on the seventh day, there's not going to be anything. There will be no food because the seventh day is a day of rest. It points us to the fourth commandment when God is going to give them the law. And so at first, the Israelites are learning. They're getting a little better. And so at first, they do exactly as they're told. They go out and gather as much as they need. No one had too much and no one had too little. But then Moses does something. He adds to the instruction that God had given him. And he says, okay, at the end of the day, I want you to throw away your food. I want you to throw away your food. Now you can imagine, imagine if we were in the desert and we didn't know where we would get food the next day. We didn't know where there would be water coming from. We finally are able to gather those things and then someone tells us at the end of that day, I want you just to throw it all away. Don't worry, throw it all away. Well, as you can imagine, the Israelites revolted a little bit. We can see that that would be a hard test to pass, but for them, they're an agrarian society. And so this would have gone against every natural instinct they had. They were farmers. They knew that you never just harvested enough for one day. No animal, no crop would just produce you needed for the next day. If they did that in their old way of life, they would run out of food. And so here we see they don't trust God because they don't do what he says because what he is asking them to do is completely counterintuitive to everything that they know and experience to this point. But if we go back and we remember that God is just trying to establish a new way of life with them. He wants them to trust him alone to provide his needs. He wants to test them to see if they will obey the commands, not only that make sense, but the ones that don't. Friends, this is a hard truth for us today. I think about our young people today, especially, and and some of the tests they are facing as they wade through the waters of our culture. Oftentimes, the rules that God gives them, the rules that God gives us, they don't make any sense. They go against everything that our culture and our world tells us that we should be doing. God's laws, God's framework for us, he says, do good to your neighbor, Do good to your neighbor when they hurt you. Uh, Do extra good to them. Actually, love your enemies. God says, rest when you really need to be productive. God says, wait until marriage to experience sexual intimacy. God says, give your resources away, even when you want to hoard them and hold on to them. Give your resources away for the good of others. God says, put your own needs last so that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. None of this makes any sense to the world we live in today. Being obedient to God's way of life doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense if we rely on our own wisdom. It only makes sense when we trust that the giver of life, that the rule maker, that his ways are higher than our ways, and then we can lean into obedience when life gets hard because we trust that he has our best interests at heart. It's never about the rules. It's always about the relationship. Now, if we quickly move on to chapter 17, we find more of this pattern. More of this pattern where we see testing and obedience. We see disobedience. We see God deliver his people. And it happens in chapter 17 when they come to another point on the journey. And they once again find themselves without water. 
Except this time, when they find themselves without water, there's not a natural spring there where maybe there's some hope of getting some water. God actually leads them to a field of rocks. The people grumble. It feels like a trap. I don't blame them. The way out seems impossible. But this time, Moses says something a little different in his response to them. Moses says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? In verse 17, verse 7, he says, he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, at the risk of it never getting done with this sermon, I just have to say, we need to just spend just one minute here because we ask ourselves, what does it mean for God to test us? But I think it's important here to know, what does it mean for us to test God? We see here that the Israelites, first thing they do is they question God's presence. Is God with us or not? Now, never mind, there was a big cloud that was following them that showed God's presence, but they said, hey, is God with us or not? What I want us to know here is that the wilderness is a place where we will question God's presence, and that's okay. God does not have a problem with our questions and our doubts. In fact, God invites us to give him our questions and our doubts. We see it in the book of Psalms. It's a wonderful guide. God has no problem with us questioning and doubting, especially when we are in the wilderness. But testing God, what the Israelites are doing here, is more than about having questions and doubts. God tests us because he wants us to have a deeper relationship with him. We test God when we want him to meet our needs. We test God so that we can get what we want. Testing God means to ask him to prove that he is real, that he is good, that we put him to the test to justify our faith. God, if you do this certain thing for me, if you deliver me from my wilderness, if you make me happy, if you change my circumstances, then I will trust and obey. It's an attempt for us to put ourselves in a position of authority over God. It makes our trust and obedience contingent on God's performance. We only trust him and obey when our circumstances change rather than learning to trust and obey because our trust and obedience is rooted in his unchanging character. That's what it means to put God to the test. And it's so interesting here. The crazy thing about our good and gracious God is even though the people put God to the test, The crazy thing about God is that he chooses to deliver them anyway. In his goodness and in kindness, he commands Moses to strike a rock, an object where it's impossible without God for water to flow, and it happens anyway. And the Israelites, once again, they get their meads net, they drink until they are full, and they go on their merry way. God wants them to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is a trustworthy God. As we come to the end of this, here's where I want us to know. The wilderness can come without warning. We know that's true. The wilderness can last longer than we think. 
The wilderness is a place that will test our trust and obedience, and the wilderness is a place where we are tempted to question the goodness and the grace and the presence of God. But my friends, this morning, I want you to hear that the wilderness is not a place our God himself has not been. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus experiences his own unexpected turn. He is being baptized in the Jordan River. He goes from being baptized to coming up out of the water to seeing the heavens open, to seeing the Holy Spirit descend on him, bright light, to hearing the voice of his father that says, this is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. That's Jesus' experience coming out of the water, and then we see in the sharp and unexpected turn, the Spirit of God leads him into the wilderness where his trust and obedience were tested over and over and over again. And what we learn from Jesus, what we see from our good and gracious God, is that Jesus didn't complain. He didn't blame other people. He didn't demand to be delivered. When Satan tempted him, he refused to put God to the test, and instead he said, I will worship and serve my God alone, because he knew. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he served a trustworthy God. And his obedience overflowed out of this trust when we see that in the depths of his own wilderness, he was obedient to God, even obedient to death on a cross. When it made no sense, when life was hard, Christ sacrificed his life for us so that you and that I and in the world around us that we would not have to live forever in this space in between. Friends, I don't know what your wilderness journey is this morning. I don't know what your experiences have been I don't know what journey you may find yourself experiencing today, and I have to say, regardless of what you may be experiencing in your own personal lives, I think when we look at the weight of the world and the wilderness around us, especially as we started the service today, I imagine that we are all feeling this in-between place. I don't know where you're at in your journey today, but what I do know is the wilderness is a place where God invites us to trust Jesus, to trust him more and more. And even if it's a place where we stay longer than we think, even it's a place that lasts and is a lot harder than we think it will be, what we see in Jesus is that we can place our trust in God in those moments because we serve a trustworthy God. As my friend Casey Tigert reminds us, the wilderness is a place where we can't go home, but we also can't stay forever. And in that wilderness experience is sometimes where we are reminded most that the goodness and the grace of God, it rises to the surface because every new beginning, my friends, every new beginning starts from some other beginning's end. Will you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, as we sit here today for the truth of your word, for the reminder of who you are. Lord, that we can trust and obey you because you love us so much. And so, Lord, I pray this morning, no matter where we may find ourselves, 
Lord, that you would meet us here, that you would remind us of your faithfulness, of your presence, and you would call us into a deeper relationship with you. Lord, we trust you. We obey you today. Lord, give us the courage to live that out as we go from this place. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.